Hello and welcome to the Rubber Duck Dev Show. I'm Chris. I'm Creston. And tonight we're going to be talking about refactoring techniques. Woohoo! Uh, but before we do that, what'd you do this week? So the database consulting, the Postgres database consulting I do started ramping up a little bit more since close of the year, uh, as well as some Rails consulting projects. So I'm getting started into some of that. Uh, in terms of my own application, basically I've made a fair number of performance enhancements, but I didn't have all the test coverage I want. So it's inter interesting that we're talking about refactoring because basically I had been putting off, putting off, putting off, actually pushing these features alive because I wanted to refactor how my tests were done. And I basically spent a lot of time refactoring those tests. And now I'm I'm never 100% happy with my tests, but I'm happier <laughs> than what, what existed before. And I'm happy with how kind of valid or construction constructed and the coverage is you know higher than, than it was. So uh, I spent a lot of time doing that, refactoring and figuring out how I wanted to address adding these new features in. So mm -hmm. what'd you do? Well, my um, my big um, refactor that I was working on, I put that up to the dev test environment. And the next morning it promptly got stomped on by another branch. So that was all kinds of fun figuring out, spending the first hour of that day trying to figure out why the hell none of my changes were working. <laughs> but, you know, because they weren't there anymore. Um. And so they just so it didn't get merged, it was just like overwritten or something, or yeah. Well, I mean, it was, I mean, you it, as, normally, as much as you can go into specifics, I'm just I know you yeah, can't, but I was just kind of curious now, as to what how that happens. Normally, what we do with our dev environment is we do on our release week, um, we'll merge everything into our dev branch and push it up for testing. But this was such a, a complex, low-level um, change that we didn't want to merge mm -hmm. it into our dev branch until it had been tested separately. So I put it up there, but then they somebody merged the dev branch and put that up on top of it without this, this having been merged in yet. So it was one of those... Uh, okay. it, it, was, it was an oddball situation that's not normal flow. But, you know, okay. it just kind of got out of whack. But I spent, you know, about an hour trying to figure out because it, it's none of the changes were front facing. So you can't look at it and tell that it's not there. It's how things react on the back end. So I was sitting there, you know, doing the stuff that should have been happening. And I'm going, what the what? I I, I broke everything. And it was my test. My code wasn't even up there. So a little bit of a freak out. <laughs> You know, uh, but it's, it's, it's all good. Um, and then I, I spent a lot of time this week doing log diving, trying to sort issues out. So that was, it's not my favorite thing to do, but sometimes that's just what the job is. So is that one step below dumpster diving? You know? Just, yeah, kinda, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, uh, 
it's just not fun <laughs> looking through all pages and pages and pages of logs. Blip. So anyway, um, all right. So refactoring. This is fun stuff. Um, we're going to be taking a look at some specific techniques. Um, we're not going to do deep dives. We're going to talk a little bit about um, what stuff really works well in the wild in real life um, and which ones you should kind of concentrate on, especially if you're a new developer and you're kind of coming into refactoring and you don't you you don't have a lot of experience with refactoring and all these things but we're going to take a look at a site called refactoring guru and let's look through some of the techniques not all of them because there are a million techniques um okay that was a bit hyperbolic but still there's a lot um so memorize them all all the names there will be a quiz at the end of the show um no seriously i, it, I think i think i'd fail that one <laughs> So would I. Uh, 80% of these things I, I never use. You know, so, and some of them are are just so kind of ingrained in you as a programmer that you don't even think about them. They're, they're so ubiquitous and, and low level. But um, there, there's a lot of research and and academics done on refactoring and the, the theories of refactoring and how code should be laid out and all that kind of stuff. And it, it changes a lot. Um, the, the theories aren't all the same as they were when I was starting programming on my clay tablet. Um, so it does change, but um, to a point, but there are a lot of still consistent things. If you study these refactorings in school or read a book about them, the, the theory of refactoring and all that stuff, there's going to be a lot of stuff in there. What we're going to try to do is pull it down to, all right, yeah, but 85 to 90% of the time, I'm doing these few things in my refactorings. Over my career, typically those boil down to three kind of broad concepts. Either I'm looking at a conditional logic block and trying to simplify that mess because oftentimes conditional logic blocks turn into just, they just get gross. Um, or I'm extracting or breaking down complex methods because methods have just grown and grown and grown over time and they get this little line added and this line and this line before long, you've got a hundred line method that does 25 different things and you're like uh bleh. or you're changing the hierarchy or relationship between classes so i'm pulling classes apart that are doing too much or um, i'm putting you know subbing classes under other classes that really belong to them or or making a super class out of something that that needs to be brought up there are a lot of other refactorings that that exist and that can be useful from time to time, but a huge majority of the time when I'm doing refactoring, it's one of those three basic things. Now, those three basic things are pretty broad, and they encompass a number of different refactoring techniques, and we'll look at those specifically, but those are kind of 
where most of the refactoring goes. That includes both the refactoring as I go, like I'm fixing a bug, I'll do a little refactor here, you know, maybe fix a conditional block that looks really gross around the bug that I'm fixing. Or if I'm taking specific refactoring time and saying, okay, this class is a mess, I'm going to spend a week and refactor it and get it all pretty. Um, so whether I'm doing one or the other, it's still mostly the same broad strokes things that I'm looking at. So let's take a look at the refactoring guru. So this website is pretty nice. Um, I've, I found it, I've referenced it a few times and I've looked through it and it's got a lot of good information on all these techniques. It's a very good site. So if you're trying to learn about refactoring, I would highly recommend going and checking this out. Uh, link is in the description. So they've got it kind of broken down into broad categories, uh, composing methods, moving features, organizing data. You know, so they've got those. And then you can see how many different little refactoring techniques there are. You don't have to remember what they're called. It, it doesn't matter. Understanding, at least being familiar with all these, is a good idea. Um, just to at least have been, have been exposed to them. So that you can understand when you run across code, oh, this should probably look more like this. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the specific ones here, but... Um, so, the, the most helpful kind of techniques that I'm, I've dealt with the most, um, we're going to take a look at. The, the first one is extract method. This, I do this almost constantly. Almost every refactor that I do ends up having this in some form or fashion. Almost. Um, basically what it is, is I've got a, if I've got a method that's doing more than it should be doing, then I pull some of that out to a different method and then just call that method from there. So instead of doing this mess under the method, I simplify that method by pulling that stuff out and writing it and just calling that second method from the first one. That's one of the fastest ways to simplify big nasty methods is just find chunks of things that do a, th a thing, pull that chunk of code out, and just call it something meaningful and replace it with the call to that new method. Now, I got a question here. So, because, I mean, of course, I do extract methods, but I think my tolerance for lengths of methods is much higher than your typical programmers. Like, I don't mind the method being a little bit long, personally, but I've seen other people complain, like, I don't know, it seems like the Ruby community seems to idolize one-line methods or two-line methods or three-line methods or, or something like that. Do you have a level at which you say, hey, this is too much or a target out of curiosity? For me, it's not about the, the number of lines in a method or how long the method is. A good first glance test is, 
if the method is more than a page, it probably is doing too much. What I'm more concerned about is, is this method too broad? Is there too many different things going on in here that should be, you know, this method does just this thing and this method does just this thing. That's what I'm more concerned about. Now, I don't like one-line methods most of the time. There's a few exceptions, but for the most part, if it's a one-line method, you've just wasted two lines of code with your def and your end. So, you know, just yeah, inline that's, it. That, that, that's, and the thing that bugs me about excessive extractions of methods is that now I've got to go look at the code and as opposed to just reading through the method and just now I suddenly have to, oh, it calls this method. And then I go look, well, what does this method do? And I see, and this calls another method. Now I got to go 500 lines above it. Now it calls this method. Oh, now I got to go to this file. So basically for me to debug something, I have to, this is when I've looked at other people's code where they have very short methods. I have to go six different hops between files and within the, to understand, okay, this is what's happening and what's causing this problem. Right. And what to change to fix it. So that is a downside of trying to push, you know, small methods in my opinion right yeah and there is as an overarching thought in the back of your head as you're doing refactorings there's a fine line between good refactorings and being just too clever for your own good um all the theory of refactoring doesn't necessarily work well in the real world all the time because you have to worry about readability and maintainability too if I bring another programmer in, are they going to understand this? So I, it, that's a good segue. I'm going to jump ahead to one of the other methods, which is, or one of the other techniques, which is rename method. A lot of times when I have that problem you're describing, it's because people, when they extract a method and they're calling a method, they do something silly like this, get SNM. I, if I'm reading code, I don't know what the hell that means. Don't name it that. Call it get second name. Then I can look at that method and say, okay, I'm calling a method called get second name. I'm pretty sure what that does, right? Well, right. But I'm talking to the point where I'm trying to like diagnose a bug. There's some problem. And if the methods are too, it, renaming, it doesn't matter what the name is. Yeah. But it's basically, it's called something now. I got to go find it. Oh, and there's this one line. Oh, and that calls this, you know. So I'm having to, jump five different places to find out what the core problem is. Right. So renaming wouldn't resolve that particular problem. But I agree with you. Clear naming definitely helps. Yeah, because I see this all the time, this kind of stuff where they've got, you know, like one letter variable names or calls to some cryptic method name that means nothing except an acronym that this person made up and they're the only ones that know what it means. You know, I see that stuff all the time. And it's it's annoying because that's just lazy programming. Spell it out. It's, you know, typing 10 extra characters isn't that big a deal if you're a developer. If you have, if it's that big a deal to type 10 characters, you probably shouldn't be developing because you can't type fast enough. I mean, you know, learn to type. Well, there's also autocomplete. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, you're using come an on. ID that does that. So right. So there's there's just no no reason to be doing stuff with these shortened acronymic names unless there's unless the acronym is so commonplace like ID. I, I know what an ID is, right? That's that's just part of basic language. Um. So anyway, that the extract method um, is one of the most used things in my arsenal when I'm refactoring. I, I do that almost all the time. Um, and even when I'm trying to do different types of refactoring, often the easiest way to get started with those is to start extracting chunks of code into separate methods to make it easier to see the flow of what's going on instead of trying to read through 100 lines of inline code and 85 different if-conditional branches. Um, so related to this is extract class. Sometimes what you've got going on in a method actually is so complex that some of it needs to be a completely different class all on its own because it has nothing to do with what the class is supposed to be caring about that you're working in, right? So a good example of that is... Um, that they've got here is that I've got a person that's got a um, office area code, an office number, and a name, and then it has a method called get telephone number. Well, uh, you know, this telephone number data doesn't really belong to the person; it belongs to the telephone to get link or to the telephone number object to get linked to. So it really should be a separate class because it's two different things. And that also makes it easier later to use this telephone number class for something else or link to it in different ways without it being all glommed up in the person class. So it just makes things a lot easier to understand. And it, it makes things a lot easier to move around in the code. All right, so those are, those are kind of the the big things when I'm trying to reduce the complexity of methods. The, the first thing I do is just start pulling chunks of code out into smaller methods that mean something and that mean only one thing. Uh, the next thing that I typically will look at is conditional expressions because those can get really complex, they can get really difficult to understand. They tend to grow over time because you have an if statement and then there's an else. And then something happens in the field and, oh, there's this little edge case we got to handle. Here's another else. Oh, and then there's this other edge case we got to handle. Here's another else. And before you know it, you've got an if with 25 else's. Each one of those has a nested if, and that's just impossible. Uh, so typically what, what you there's a few techniques to work through with that. One is look for places where um, your returns are identical. Like maybe out of those 25 else's, I've got four of them that they're different conditions, but they return the same thing. Well, I can collapse those into one conditional to just return that thing. So all of these conditions will return this. 
So that's one way to start simplifying stuff. Um, another way is to um, break out some of the conditionals if they're related into a function that you can then call as the conditional and let it say, okay, if it's this or this or this, it, it matches this condition. So it makes it a lot easier to read. So like, for instance, here we've got this, if seniority is less than two, or if months disabled is greater than 12, or if is part-time, when I could just call if is not eligible for disability, and that function checks these things, then I know, hey, that's the condition I want to return zero for. So I'm collapsing a bunch of junk into one simple expression, and then that expression I can go look at if I need to know. But typically, all I need to know is this expression, which is why naming is important. I can read that, is not eligible for disability. I kind of know what that means without having to go look at the, the actual code. Um, and conditional refactoring is, for me, one of the best ways to make code more readable. Because most of the time when I have trouble reading code, it's in areas where there's a lot of weird conditionals. Um, another yeah. little... Yeah, another little tip that I have that, that makes it just hard to read, while it's technically correct, if there's any way to avoid using a not statement, flip it. Do, do the positive if. Don't use nots, because human brains just have a hard time with that, and it makes the conditional very difficult. Um... So, and this replace nested conditional with guard clauses. So, this is actually nicer in Ruby than in, um, I don't know if this is Java that they're, it might just be C sharp. Down on the, yeah, I think it's oh, yeah, Java, this is Java. Whatever's clicked on. Yeah. So, this is actually, you know, Java can do guard clauses, but in the Ruby world, this is the thing that we just tack an if or an unless onto the end of a sentence. So, Basically, we're putting, um, instead of doing else's, what we're doing is, if it's this, just return and go away. Then if it's this, return and go away. Instead of if, else, else if, else, else if, else if, if. As soon as you can short circuit something and just get out of the code, do that. Um, you can see that it's a lot easier to read than this mess because I only have to worry about one condition at a time. And Ruby would be even easier to read because you can right. literally type like return that amount if is dead. Right. Return separated amount if is separated. Right. So this would actually just be four lines of code in Ruby be that one yeah that one that one and then the default return um which is one of the reasons i like ruby so much you can read it like an actual spoken language almost 
Um, now, you don't always want to do that. There are, there are cases where either you can't or it's actually less readable because you've got some long condition with this if thing tacked on that's, you know, 250 characters out and you can't see it on a monitor. Um, yeah, and this only is useful in certain, you know, use cases. Right. Too, so. As is pretty much any refactoring technique, the, the reason they have them named like this is there are specific use cases where you want to pull these techniques out. So knowing about all of them is a good idea. But my experience over more than two decades of doing this is that I don't typically use the majority of them on a day-to-day -day basis. All right, so another way to break methods down that's used a lot is to parameterize the methods. So um, instead of having some hard-coded stuff with if statements and things in there, you just pass a parameter in and let the calling object say, this is what it is. Um, So in this example, uh, there's a 5% raise method and a 10% raise method. Well, I could just make that a raise method and tell me what percentage you want. So not only does that make it easier to read, it makes it more flexible because, oh gosh, next year we're going to implement the 7% raise. Well, okay, I just make a different call. I don't have to write a whole new method for the 7% raise. Now we want the 7.652% raise. Okay, as soon as I've gotten to that level, well, now I've got 8 million different methods I have to write as opposed to just one. So um, this is a really good way to simplify the code flow, and this is something that I use a lot, um, especially... This goes. This works well in conjunction with extracting methods. So if I extract something from from a method where it's being used, I'll take a chunk of code and just kind of extract it to its own method. Anything in there that seems hard coded, I'll parameterize that because I know that down the road, that's going to make it easier to use that method for something else. And one of the hallmarks of whether you should extract a method or not is, might I ever use this for something else? Might I ever want to call this some somewhere else? It's not the only time you want to do it. But if you could see yourself calling that method from somewhere else, you probably want to parameterize some things in there because the somewhere else is going to be calling it different. Otherwise, it would be in the first place it'd be the same call. Um, so another big one is kind of like extracting a method, but this is extracting a subclass. So I've run into classes where they are just doing way too much. Classes should be responsible for one conceptual thing. So if as soon as they start doing stuff that doesn't belong to that conceptual thing that are kind of tangential or if I have more than one type of that thing I need to start pulling classes up or down 
So this works both ways. It, th this is extract subclass. There's also an extract superclass, depending on whether I need to pull methods up or push them down uh, to something else. So in this case, you know, they've got this job item that gets total price, get unit price, get employee. They're breaking it out to a job item with a subclass of a labor item that has get unit price and get employee. A lot of times what it'll do is it'll override the parent class's methods to specialize them for some subclass of that item. So a, a good example you see all the time is like vehicle, okay? I've got a vehicle class. Under that, I've got a car, I've got a bus, I've got a, a semi, I've got a helicopter. They all do different things, but they're all, they all have some base methods that are the same. <coughs> right? Throttle, propulsion, engine type, things like that. So rather than having a bunch of if statements in the parent class to differentiate those things, you make a subclass of them so that you can just instantiate that class and it is that type of thing. There's no nasty if statements all through there trying to determine um, what it does. Because as soon as you do that, okay, in my get total price, I have to figure out, is it one of these or one of these or one of these? And then in my get unit price, I have to figure out, is it one of these or one of these or one of these? And that just gets nasty. So if you see a lot of if statements spread across your methods, and the if statements are constantly trying to determine if they're the same, making the same determinations about which thing this is, which type of thing, you need to extract this into subclasses and just have those methods assume it's that thing because that's the subclass it is. Uh, and then last, the last type of thing that I generally use is pull up or push down fields. So it's the same kind of thing as classes, subclass or superclass, but it's with fields. So in the example here, there's this unit, has a subclass of soldier and a subclass of tank. Each one of those has a health field. The soldier has a health and the tank has a health. Well, I should push that up to the superclass. If all of my subclasses have that field, then I should just put it in my superclass and the subclasses will inherit it. That way, if I make a change to it, I only make it in one place and it affects everything. Um, and that happens, too, where in the opposite direction, let's say that health has to be different for a soldier and a tank, so I don't want it in unit. Um, I'm, I'm making it a different type. This example doesn't work well for that, but, you know, I may have to push something down, a field down a level, because they're so different that I can't generalize them at a, at a superclass yeah so all these other techniques are good to know about introduce null object i've used that before how often have i used it i've used it twice in 23 years so yes it solved a it solved a problem really well but it solves a very specific problem so knowing about it is great Memorizing that 
hey, there's one called introduce null object. So just, you know, go look it up. Polymorphism. Yes, polymorphism is great conceptually. It gets very complex in the real world, and it it becomes a readability and maintenance issue. So I only use polymorphism in very specific cases where I know it's not going to cause other problems. Um, so all of these other things are nice to know, they're valuable, but they're not typically used in my experience. I just don't use them very much. So that's my big soapbox rant on refactoring. What, what things do you typically do when you're refactoring? What kind of techniques are you using mostly? So I guess I'll approach, I'll answer the question a little bit differently because it's something I've been thinking about. It's like, it's kind of the approach of when I approach refactoring, because like I said, my tolerance for <laughs> length of methods is probably higher than most programmers, but I'm kind of like, I let the feature development and the tests that are needed that drives what I'm going to refactor. Like if I look at this method, you know, like I do what you say, you know, I keep adding lines to a method. <clears throat> but at the point I need to use something more than once, okay, that's an opportunity to extract logic out of there, put it in its own method. So I kind of wait for the moment until I need to use it more than once. Or if it's going to make testing easier, hey, if I put this in its own method, then I can conveniently call it super fast. You know, then I'll I'll go ahead and do that. Right. And that's a good point too to bring up is don't refactor early. In in the real world, while while in theory, it's nice to make sure it's always refactored and everything is is you know, rainbows and unicorns. In the real world, you just don't have time to keep it that way. You refactor when it becomes, when not refactoring is an issue. Not just because, hey, my my teacher once said that I should always refactor. In the business world, you, that costs money. It, you know, it costs money because it costs time to do these refactoring. So only do it if it's going to make things better. Yeah, and, and here's the reality is that, you know, I came from a systems administrator background, meaning take care of systems, and I had the equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, mm -hmm. like don't bring the system down. So I know a lot of programmers are, hey, new feature and add all these new things. To me, every introduction of a new feature is an opportunity to break something. <laughs> Yep. So I'm hesitant to make changes to code that's, you know, very old and working. So if it's working, even though it may not look the prettiest, it's working, there's no complaints, there's no errors, it's good. Now, the disadvantage, so that's one disadvantage, I'll, I'll say, like running some of these things, like uh, we, we had the show on Ruby critic a few weeks ago 
well, that kind of introduces you, hey, these classes are really complex. And on one hand, that's great to know and and have that available. But on the other hand, it kind of makes you want to go in and fiddle with things and make it better. But then, you know, then there's the risk of breaking something if you don't have sufficient test coverage to, you know, make sure you don't break something. Right. And that's the very important point. Before you refactor, make sure you're testing. Don't do this stuff without tests. My God. It's, <laughs> it's, that's just, you might as well just go live in a ditch because you're going to get that's fired. Re gonna... re refactoring 101. Yeah. I have tests. If, if it's not tested, don't refactor it. And if you really need to refactor some code, make write sure it's test. tested first. <laughs> write the test, yeah. and then you refactor. Then you refactor. Yep, every episode, harping on the tests. <laughs> By God, we're going to make some testing programmers if it kills me. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's it's important to do that. It's also important to understand what effects you're going to have. For instance, this refactor I just did, this big one, it was very low level, but I couldn't refactor everything about it because some of it were actually had um, implications to external APIs, customer-facing APIs, and you can't just go refactor those whenever you want to, right? They, they need some refactoring, but there's more that goes into making those decisions than hey, this is gross, I think I'll refactor it. Well, yeah, you may have just broken all your customers' interfaces. <laughs> you know, got to kind of be careful. <coughs> so make sure you understand what the implications are of the area of code you're going to be refactoring and what you need to do to protect um, yourself, your business, and your customers from doing, well, from screwing things up. <laughs> Just, yeah. I'll just say it like that, um, because you can. I mean, if I'd gone and refactored those APIs, we'd have been in a world of hurt. So yeah. So you know, so going back to what I was saying, I kind of let the new feature development drive when I refactor things, and also testing, like if I'm doing tests and I can find a way to do it more efficiently by adjusting methods to be able to test them easier. That's another reason I refactor. And then plus it also, the the other time it comes into play is when I'm working a lot with code and I feel the burden of call a poorly written code or it's just gotten to that state where it's like, Okay, I got to make this easier to work with because my velocity, you know, my speed of development is, is hurting. So, for example, if I have tons of like conditionals or if I have nested conditionals, at that point I'm saying, okay, I need to refactor this in, in some way to make it more efficient or and make my work with it more efficient or better. Yeah. And it's important to realize too that. It's very uncommon that I will ever, you know, just look at something and say, okay, I'm just going to refactor this whole thing. It's a mess. 99% of the time, it's, hey, let's extract this method. Okay, that's all I want to do. 
you know, I, I was working on a bug. This got confusing. Let's extract this method. It's a little bit yeah. cleaner. Let's just, you know, baby steps forward on that stuff. And while this refactor I was working on, I'm calling it a big refactor because it, it is, but it wasn't the complete. the scope of it was big. Right. Or, yeah. But it's still just a step towards a bigger thing that needs to happen. But I wasn't going to try to do it all at once. That would have been impossible. <clears throat> well, for me, anyway, my brain would have exploded. Um, but yeah, it, you really shouldn't do mass refactorings. At that point, you might as well just start the program over. It's it's you're gonna mess something up. Um, do small little things, and then once you start, you know, like you extract method, you extract method, you extract method, and over a couple of weeks, you start seeing patterns and say, "Hey, wait a minute, this should probably be a whole different class." All right, well now let's make a class and make this a little better. So you step your way into that, and then you start it. The 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 layout of the code starts becoming clearer little by little by little, and you have a better idea of where the code needs to go. Because a lot of times you can't see that um, just stepping into the mess to start with. Or even if you're writing code from scratch, sometimes you can't see, okay, well, this is going to become a different class because it's going to grow into this thing. But you just don't know that ahead of time. That's why there's refactoring. Um, but yeah, it, it, don't do it all at once. It's better to just go a little bit at a time. Hey, let me fix this nasty-looking if statement. See if I can make this easier to read. Let me extract this method. Let me extract this little class. You know. And a lot of new programmers that I've talked to get get kind of intimidated by okay, we got to refactor this. And they're like, oh God, I don't know. I don't know what there's 800 different techniques and all this stuff I need to... No, just read the code. If something doesn't read right, if you have a hard time, if you're reading code and then you get to a section, you're like, you yeah. what, what the hell does this mean? Dig into that, pull it out, and make a method name so you know what it means. It's... It really doesn't have to be difficult. It's not rockets. It's not rockets. Right. And one of the reasons that I, I was a little hesitant about the title of tonight's episode with, I initially was going to call it refactoring techniques. I changed it to refactoring in the wild because I don't like getting hung up on the techniques. That's not the important part. <laughs> it's the thought process of how do I make this code better? How do I make this read in an understandable way? So what the techniques are called and how many of them there are is absolutely unimportant. Understanding what they do and being familiar with, hey, you know, code, a lot of, in this situation, code looks like this. And in this situation, code looks like this. And if I want to get it there, I can take these steps to get it there. But memorizing all the names and all that stuff is... Well, it's academic. If you want to take a test on it, great. But other than that, it's not really going to help you that much. So, anywho. All right. Any final thoughts on refactoring? All right. I don't think so. Well, hope you guys enjoyed that. If you did, please make sure and mash that like button and subscribe and 
follow and we're on Twitch and YouTube. So you just mash all the buttons and ding all the bells. Uh, every Wednesday night, 8 p.m. for more dev talk. You can join us. You can chat. You can make your feelings known. Uh, next week, well, you had a topic that you wanted to bring up. What was that? Uh, I think it was talking about basically talking about the jam stack. So basically this concept of delivering just static HTML pages with JavaScript added in to give it dynamic, dynamic, excuse me, dynamic <laughs> parts to it. Like maybe a contact form or things of that nature. Cause that's how I'm producing my websites. And I kind of wanted to talk with, cause I'm getting ready to redo one of my websites and talk about that and also talk about headless CMSs as well. So these are content management systems that don't directly render like the pages, like a WordPress site does, but they just simply deliver content as an API. So for example, your JavaScript could consume and render those static pages or do it dynamically on a site. So basically talking about that whole concept. Oh, that's a hell of a title. I better start typing now. Uh, so <laughs> if you have a topic you'd like to see, please let us know in the comments below. Uh, we'll take a look at it and see if we can make a show out of it. Um, podcasts are available in all the places that podcasts live. Please join us on our site, rubberduckdevshow.com, to sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, at DuckyDevShow. We will see you next week. And until then, happy programming. Happy programming.